0: Right, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Matthew's Gospel. It's in the New Testament, first book of the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 5 again together. We have been doing a, a teaching series for the last few weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. I started a couple of weeks ago looking at the upside-down kingdom, and then Graham spoke last week on the issue of lust, uh, and I know many of us found that a very challenging, uncomfortable sermon. Uh, well, I'm hoping that today can continue that theme of uncomfortableness, not because we like doing that, but because Jesus' His words in the Sermon on the Mount are quite full-on. They're quite in-your-face and uh, we're going to be tackling a subject today that is a very unpopular, very controversial, highly sensitive subject and because it's so controversial, because it's so sensitive we're going to split it over two weeks because we're we're glutton for punishment Uh, and I'm also hoping that next week Jesus could come and explain what he meant when he said what we're going to read and I figured that would be a lot easier for all of us and then what happens is the week after I can get back up and say who was here last week for Jesus wasn't he he was hard wasn't he let's not have Jesus back let's have Graham or let's have Andrew Um, because Jesus yeah he does say some controversial things. And I love, um, I love church history, and uh, particularly the early church history. Just the first few centuries after Jesus went to be with the Father, to seeing how the church got themselves organized and, and what they did. It was a difficult few centuries, uh, but Christians, they, they got known for a few things. They were hated by many um, and loved by some. Uh, They were an intriguing, unusual bunch of people that got known as being a community of people that were almost entirely other-centered, poor-loving, promise-keeping, upstanding and loyal members of society. Uh, such that when Emperor Julian in the 3rd century tried to revert the empire back to paganism, away from Christianity, he found that he couldn't do it because the Christians were such good citizens of the empire that he really couldn't turn the empire back to paganism because Christianity had taken such effect on the hearts of people as they realized these Christians had turned the world upside down by their other love and poor sacrificial serving and promise keeping and all of that. And, And I think in part what happened was The early Christians, they really took Jesus' words very seriously. And they understood what what it was to bow the knee to Jesus instead of Caesar, who was the ruler of the day. They weren't affected by the cultural whims and the society norms. Instead, they pursued Jesus and his standard for their lives. And because of that, because we're in that mold and image and wanting to be followers of Jesus, we're going to be looking at his words on the subject of marriage, divorce, and promise-keeping, which, as I said, is a difficult subject to go through. But at a time when the divorce rate is as high as it is, at a time when people are rethinking, and redefining what they think marriage is, and at a time where even the church and Christians seem confused in this matter, I think it matters to us that we hear what Jesus has to say, no matter how uncomfortable it might be. And also at a time when the church's reputation and respectability is as low as it is, uh, at a time when Christians are scorned for their hypocrisy, and at a time when one man replied to the question, why don't you go to, the, why don't you go to church, with the answer, Church, I have enough problems of my own life, why would I go there and get more? At a time like that, it's important that we engage with what Jesus has to say about this subject. So Matthew 5 Verses 32 to 37. Or 31, I should say. So Jesus is following on from what he's just said about lust that we covered last week and the importance of keeping your heart pure before God. Jesus says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Okay, so after reading that, I have plenty of questions. Uh, So I'm I'm really looking forward to Jesus being here next week to answer some of those questions. Um, But as far as I can tell, there's three reasons why Jesus would have said what he said about marriage and divorce. Those three things are, uh, first,ly to do with the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, to do with uh, the cultural context that he's speaking into, the society of his day. And thirdly, to to do with the significance of marriage and what Jesus said thought and taught about marriage. Today, we're going to just look at point number one. Next week, we're going to look at the cultural context of Jesus' day and the significance of what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. Today, we're going to look at the context within of what Jesus is saying within the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Okay, so we're kind of taking, in many ways, the most painful bit and leaving that for next week. So we can all kind of relax a little bit. Okay, okay, good. So we're going to be talking instead about the context of the Sermon on the Mount. See, before we can explore points two and three about society and marriage, we need to first of all get point one really nailed, namely why Jesus is saying what he's saying in light of the whole Sermon on the Mount and what he's particularly just said in what we're, we're reading. That's what we're going to be doing. Now, Jesus' teaching on marriage is sandwiched between last week's section on lust and the section that I read on oaths or lies, lust and lies and then marriage. And one writer says this, he says, lust and lies are like weeds that grow up and choke the the fragile and beautiful plant of marriage. So in other words, if we sort out our lust problems and if we can sort out our integrity problems, then a lot of marriages can be preserved and can be strengthened. And so, because of that, we're going to be looking at this subject of oath-keeping, truth-telling, that we might be people of integrity, that the church might again rise up as being this reliable promise-keeping group of Jesus followers so let's read verses 34 to 37 again since I know last time I read it no one listened because all they were focused on was divorce and adultery and like what does that mean so instead we're going to read this just on oaths again verses 33 to 37 Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. Now, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is he's picking up some of the Ten Commandments and reinforcing them or restating them. And whenever Jesus uses the phrase, you've heard it said, or or, people of old said this, um, sometimes that's what he's doing. He's quoting the, the Ten Commandments and then saying, but I say to you, and he's raising the standard, raising the mark for his followers. So this is what he says. There's five, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, interestingly, there's five out of the Ten Commandments that Jesus restates. But let's carry on. Uh, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. Okay. So within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, then Jesus' teaching on divorce is understood within Jesus' teaching on promise-keeping and his desire that Christians, that followers of Jesus, be people who keep their word, that we are people who say yes and mean yes and say no and mean no. And so to help people not break the commandment of do not lie or do not bear false witness, the people of Jesus' day had come up with a list of acceptable oaths that you could swear in order to be taken seriously. So people would know that, oh, I'm telling you the truth and here's an oath I'm going to swear. It's like a a spell that you can pick. Can I That's the spell, the oath that I'm going to use so that you know I'm being honest. I'm telling the truth. Jesus says, the trouble is, when you start dipping in your bag and trying to find all of these spells or oaths to try to reinforce your truth, that only ever makes you look more dishonest because how can I trust the other things that you're saying when you weren't under oath? He says, no, no, no. Instead, followers of mine You don't need oaths. You don't need to say, I swear to God, (laughs) I swear to God, on my mother's life. We don't need to do that. We don't need to go to court and say, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We don't need to promise and cross our heart and hope to die and stick needles in our eyes. We don't need to do that. Mm. Jesus is saying instead, (laughs) which is just a relief, instead when you say yes, you mean yes. The reason for that is because he's saying you are representatives of God. And if people can't trust you, how can they trust God? That's the challenge to his people. We don't need to be like children saying, I promise, I promise, I promise. Actually, in the message version, uh, it's paraphrased like this. Uh, You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk, saying, I'll pray for you, and never doing it, or saying, God be with you, and not meaning it. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes or no. Simples. (laughs) What I want to talk about today is this. Trust is like finance. It is difficult to accrue and easy to spend. Trust is like finance. It's difficult to accrue but easy to spend. You see, whenever you meet someone new, it's as though you open a new account with them, okay? Okay. And, and you don't know them from Adam. And so over time, you work out how reliable and trustworthy they are. Different things that you can do can improve that or limit that. Uh, often when, I, when I, I've had experiences in the past and I meet people for the first time and I'll ask them to do something and then check up on them and see if they're doing it. And they'll say, you can trust me. i said, I don't know if I can trust you because we have no account together. This is new. This is the first time I've met you. There's a funny story that Ollie told me from Centro last week. Um... A guy turned up at his church. This is the church in town centre in Eastbourne. He turned up at his church first week there. At the end of the meeting, he makes a beeline for Ollie because he can tell that's the guy on the stage. I need to talk to him. And he comes up to him. What was his name? His name was Angelo. I shouldn't say that out loud, really. Um, his name was Angelo. And he came up to Ollie at the end of the meeting and he went, Hi, hi, Ollie. My name's Angelo. Just wondering, um, who do I need to speak to to sing on the stage next week? And Ollie's like, um, uh, thinking, that's not really how we do things. I don't know you. We've got no trust account together. How can I rely on you to do that? But Ollie didn't do that because he's slightly cruel. So instead, he, he pointed at his worship coordinator, Martin Cooper, over the, <laughs> over the way and said, oh, that's the guy you need to speak to. He's in charge of our band. Go and have a word with him. And so Angelo walks over to to see Martin and says, Hi Martin, my name's Angelo, just spoken to Ollie. He said, uh, it's all right for me to sing next week, I just need to speak to you. (laughs) So it's very funny. And then Ollie was feeding that back in the the elders meeting earlier this week and Graham's face was like, "Ah, did you let him sing? (laughs) Because we have no trust account with Angelo. He might be a nice guy, but it's the first time we've met him. And so he needs to prove his reliability and needs to open that trust account and get it going. Now, parents know this, don't they? Don't you? You know that with your kids, the more they prove themselves trustworthy, the more their account fills with trust, and the more you can give them leeway. You can lengthen the cord that they're on. You can increase their their freedoms. It's like Sims. I don't know if you've ever played the, this computer game called Sims, where everyone has above their heads kind of different, you know, hunger readings and And tiredness readings, energy readings. And when you meet people, it's as though everyone has these levels of trust. And it's not because we're suspicious people, but it's just making the point. I don't know you. I can't trust you. I know you really well. We've got a full trust account together. I'll stop filling these up now. It's just quite addictive when you start making piles. I can see the attraction of gambling. Um, and our trust account goes up when people do things well, or it goes down. Uh, and often we deal in trust and suspicion. So someone says they'll be, be somewhere at 10, but they're not, they're there at 10.30. Now, I don't say anything out loud, but kind of subconsciously what happens is, if I'm not careful, some, some chips can go away. And I think, oh, suspicion creeps in. Or you said you'd, you'd do that, and you didn't. And we don't say this, but this is what happens. We slowly take trust away. And in all of our relationships, we deal with trust and suspicion, and we have to sometimes make sure that we're erring on the side of trust, going, I'm sure there's a good reason that Ollie was later than he said he was going to be this morning. I'm sure he missed the bus or overslept, or I'm sure, I mean, that's, that's just, I can trust Ollie. And so rather than taking chips away from our trust account because of suspicion, I said, no, I go, I'm sure this is Ollie. I know Ollie. He's a man of good character. And all of us operate like that. Now the situation we're in as a church, and as Christians, is a situation that we need to be aware of really, is that trust is difficult to accrue, right? It's easy to spend, difficult to accrue. But because of media scandals, because of hypocrisy, Christian hypocrisy, and because of our culture's suspicion towards organized religion, our trust account is pretty empty. When, so, so when someone walks into the church in Hamden Park in Eastbourne, big auditorium, nearly a thousand people gathered for worship. In the past, people might have walked in and gone, "Wow, look at this! There must be some truth in this." These days, people walk in and go, "Wow, I wonder what their trick is. I wonder what they're doing to trick that many people, because our culture has shifted in its approach to organized religion. And when you as a Christian meet someone for the first time, you say, "I, I'm a Christian." Rather than them going, oh, I can trust you because you're a Christian, there's an automatic, huh, huh you're going to try to get me, aren't you? Or can I trust you? Or you're a Christian, what's wrong with you? <laughs> they give you that look like, okay, fine, let's, let's see how this goes. And there's an empty account and you've got to, to build it up. Or sometimes things that we do, or sometimes things that people have done to us, mean that our entire trust account... <laughs> Can just get scattered and empty and left for Martin to pick up afterwards. <laughs> so we, we had this experience. We had this experience a few years ago um, with a friend of ours who, 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 told everyone that he had a, a life-limiting illness and he was near death. And everyone in my church community's hearts went out to this guy, rallying around for him, kind of praying for him, giving meals for him, dropping everything to support him when he phoned the last thing at night. Everyone would do what they can to help him. And then it turned out he'd been lying, that it wasn't true. And it was like, the ent- entire trust account was empty. Now, do we forgive people when they lose trust? Of course, we forgive always, but we trust over time. We love people always. There's a reason why people would make those kind of lies up. We love people. We help them. We disciple them through it. But we trust them again over time. Trust is like finance. It's difficult to accrue, but it's very easy to spend. And we need to be aware of that in our dealings with one another. So what we're going to do for the rest of this morning, the last 15 or so minutes, is look at what we can do as Christians, as individuals, to uh, not only gain a good trust account with one another, with the people around us, but also to keep one. Okay, so I'm gonna have to start building up my tower again as we do this. Um, now, how to gain trust. Here we go, should be up there. First of all, first thing you can do, we can do with one another in our relationships um, to gain trust. When you say you're gonna do something, you do it. As simple, isn't it? But when you say you're gonna do something, you do it, regardless. That sounds obvious, but it's surprising how often people don't do what they say they're going to do. I mean, there's always extenuating circumstances. We're not harsh or harsh with people, but we need to hold ourselves to a high standard. Jesus says, "Let your yes be yes. If I say yes, you can trust me." Now, years ago, when I was at uni, and I signed up to help at the um, the hospital service that the church ran at the at the local hospital, and I'd done it once or twice before. And I I knew the kind of environment. It it was essentially a 20-minute, half-an-hour service with three or four uh, slightly elderly, often frail, sick people. And we'd go and encourage them. We'd talk to them for half an hour and go away again. Uh, I got asked to do a talk at the next hospital service. And I thought, "It's, it's a long way away. Of course I'll say yes. So I said yes. The day came round, and it happened to be the hottest day of the year. I was a student, so I had very little to do, and all my friends were going to the pub to watch football in the sun, just, and the, the image of that just so stirred my heart. I, like, I want to go hang out with my friends and watch football. I don't want to go over here and spend time with people I don't know, and that was a real fight in my heart of, what do I do, what do I do, but I'd said I was going to do something, So it's almost like Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount just came to haunt me, like, let your yes be yes. And I was like, but it's sunny. For my friends, let your yes be yes. And so on that occasion, I I did go. But we all know people who say, I'll be there, and they're not. Or I'll come, and they don't. Or I'll serve, and they don't. Or I'll give, and they don't. Or I won't do something, and they do 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 something. Or within the context of marriage and divorce, people who've said to us, I do, and they didn't. At times when we might have said to people, I do, I will. And we couldn't, we didn't. John Hosier, who's a Christian leader at a church in Brighton, um, I heard him speak a few years ago on the subject of, uh, he was reflecting on decades of service in church work, church ministry, and sharing some tips to younger guys. And he said that when he first began in church, this wasn't a problem. But increasingly, he's noticed that Christians are the same as non-Christians, in that we say we're going to do something, but often we don't. And he said that increasingly, the people in his church were just as unreliable as everyone else around them, and his heart was grieved by that, because it didn't used to be like that, he said, when they began in church life, but we've become more like the world in that regard. Now, I'd like to think it's because we're meeting people who are very far from God, they're unchurched, they become Christians, and they've just got a lot of things. I'd like to think that. I hope it is. Sometimes I suspect maybe it isn't. Now there are some people, and I'm not directing this at anyone, by the way. There's some people in the church who are remarkable. uh, Well, I'm directing this at lots of people. There's some people in this church who are remarkable at serving. They say they're going to do something, and I know they will. If someone says they're going to take care of something, I know they will. Guys like Alex at the back. I said I wouldn't embarrass someone, but I have. Guys like Alex at the back, I know every week things are going to be taken care of, PA-wise, because he's on it. He's got that reliability thing. If you say you're going to do something, do it. There's this whole culture of Facebook eventing as well. When someone sets up an event on Facebook, everyone clicks attend. And you suddenly go, I've got an event of 100 people. Five people turn up. Because I just clicked attend. No, if you say you're going to do something, you do it. So that's how to get get trust. Um, Point number two on how to get trust is this. Oh, no, just on that one. I don't know if you're familiar with the yes damn theory. Um, be aware of this, right? So I mentioned about the hospital service that I experienced. If someone asks me to do something and it's three months down the line, so easy to say yes because you think, oh, it's three months down the line, never going to come up. And then it comes down to the day and you're like, oh, damn, why did I say yes? It's the yes, damn theory. And that's what happens. So take your time. Don't say yes too quickly because when you say yes, mean yes. Secondly, uh, admit your shortcomings. Ask for forgiveness. To gain a trust account with people. When you do that, see, when someone confesses sin to me or someone admits they've done something wrong, Graham did this last week, actually. He just he spoke out of turn during the coffee break and came and spoke to me afterwards and said, I'm really sorry, I just spoke out of turn. And I thought, that's okay, not a problem. Suddenly, trust account starts to build. I'm like, huh, if you did that about a tiny thing, you're going to do that about more. Ask forgiveness, admit your shortcomings. But only do it when you mean it. Right. Don't do what I did this week. Uh, I'm sure I promised I'd share because I, you know we want to be real, but this is bad. So Wednesday, um, I was supposed to be home in Eastbourne to give Amy the car because she needed to take Riley to a kids' party. I was in, I was in Eastbourne. I needed to be back in Seaford. And things were taking a lot longer. We were doing some videos for Impact, and, and it was raining, right? So I was getting stressed out by the rain. And so I texted her to say, I'm going to be half an hour late. Half an hour came round and I hadn't left yet. And she phoned me and said, have you left yet? I said, no. And she said, your son is sitting by the front door waiting for the car to arrive. And I got annoyed because does she not know how busy and important I am? I'm making a video for impact students who need this and rah, rah, rah. So I I hung up. I hung up mid-conversation. Started driving home. I have hands free. That's not my (laughs) confession. Started driving home having hung up and I thought, I shouldn't have done that. So I phoned her straight back and said, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But if you understood how difficult things were, and she said something, and I hung up again. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I've got to apologize, but really wait till I mean it. So I, I carried on driving, I left it five or six minutes, and then phoned. So don't do what I did. But I'd like to think that because I apologized, my trust account started to go up again. And she thought, okay, but I do that a lot of the time. So those two ways that we can gain trust, okay, three things that we can do to keep trust. Uh, the first is this, opt for authenticity, be real, publicly confess your sins. I know some, some people find it harder than others to, um, to let other people see the real them, and we have to be very careful and wise, I suppose, about who we let in and who we show all of our faults to, um, but if we want others to trust us, if we want to keep trust, then we'll opt for authenticity more than not. We'll be real with people around us. It's hard to trust the quality and contents of a closed book. You need to read it. You need to see what's under the cover and go, okay, I I like this. I can trust this person. They've shared something with me. they shared their life with me. As we do this all the time in workplace environments. We're always uh, talking to people and overselling ourselves, trying to impress people because we think, oh, if, I, if I'm real, if I'm honest, I won't sound as impressive. But I find it so refreshing when, I don't know, I'll go to a conference and I'll say, oh, how's church going? They're like, bad. I'm like, oh, I trust you. <laughs> Not because you're gloomy, but because I can tell you're being honest, you're being real. And another thing while we're on this, let's kill the word Fine. When we see one another, when we're at church, how are you doing? Fine. I mean, if you are fine, great. You don't have to kill the word fine. But often fine is a, I can't be bothered to talk about it, and I just want you to have this image of everything's together. I've got this all worked out. I'm fine. Now, I know a lot of the time we are fine, and life is good. But I know a lot of people, we meet up, I'm fine, I'm fine. And we never let people in. But if we want to keep trust, that's what we'll do. Second thing we can do if we want to keep trust, if you say, sorry, if you mean no, say no thanks mine if you mean no say no Um, and sadly if I'm honest a lot of Christians in my experience are a lot more guilty of this one of not doing this than other people Uh, a lot of my Christian friends if I say oh we're doing this thing at our house do you want to come they'll say maybe I know they mean no I'm like, just say no. <laughs> I've got a whole banquet laid out for you, and because you, you said maybe, I've got a hundred maybes, and no one came. But as Christians, we do that because oh, we want to include people, we don't want to let people down, we want people to feel like we like them. So oh, maybe, yeah, possibly, yeah, perhaps. Just say no. <laughs> That's my plea to us, because Jesus says let your no be no. So I'll say, if you mean no, say no, because when I'm when I'm forever talking to people who are forever giving me maybes and never showing up. I still love the person; we're still friends, but what happens is the trust account starts to go down. And I think, ah, oh, I don't know if I can trust you when you say you're going to become something because you said maybe, and I think you meant no. And la la la—that's what we do. And another observation of mine is that maybe has become the middle class no. A lot of my friends who describe themselves as working class say that they find it hard to trust people who are middle class because they think they are fake and pretentious because they're not honest. A lot of my working class friends are sometimes too brutally honest, but at least they call things as they are. At least they say no. Oh, do you want to come to my party? No, why? I just don't really like you. Okay, (laughs) that's fine. (laughs) At least you've been honest. The trust account is high, the friend account is low. (laughs) But I appreciate people who do that. Often for the sake of saving face or for the sake of not wanting to hurt someone's feelings. Feelings has become the middle class God, or it's the English God, or just a nice people's God a lot of the time. It can become an ultimate thing. For the sake of, I don't want to upset your feelings, we're never entirely honest. And, and again, like, you don't have to be rude. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the film Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey. And the concept of the film is that he's cursed and can only ever tell the truth which he does, but he doesn't just tell the truth. He's rude about it. You don't need to be rude, but you do need to be honest. What I would appeal to people is to not empty our integrity accounts simply for the sake of saving face or avoiding an awkward scene. Um, Okay, and thirdly, a way that we can keep our trust account high. Avoid exaggeration. Avoid exaggeration. Now, if I'm honest and being real, this is my faux pas. I am more likely than not going to err on the side of exaggerating because I'm just quite a hyperactive person. And I genuinely just want to be positive about things. And so I will err on the side of that. But I know what it's like to be around people who exaggerate all the time. In a previous church that I was in, the guy that would lead a lot of the meetings, it would exaggerate time and time again. And what I observed in my own heart was that I trusted him less and less and less. I'd never say anything, but I'd sit there and I'd go, hmm, I'm not sure if you're telling the truth. Avoid exaggeration. Now, I don't think, I don't have a problem with point one on that list. I can confess a room, confess my sin to a room and I'm okay with that, but points two and three, they're often, I think, yeah, I don't want to upset, I don't want to hurt, or I want people to think well of me, so I'll exaggerate. Or if it's not That side of exaggerating is is this one. So Amy says, oh, when are you coming home? And I say, I'm just leaving. I'm not. I'm sitting on my computer finishing an email. What I should say is, I'm sitting on my computer finishing an email, and then I'll come home. How long are you until you you leave? Oh, five minutes. Fifteen, actually. But I don't want her to think bad. I don't want her to, I'm exaggerating something. I'm being dishonest. And sometimes exaggerating the truth can be just another form of dishonesty, if we're honest. Or when someone say to you, someone you ask someone the question, how was such and such? Oh, it was awesome. Really awesome. If it was awesome, I might have heard about it. Or oh, when you went to that thing, what happened? Oh, it changed my life. Did it? How? How did your life change? Oh, like, I, I felt, felt good for half an hour. Oh, okay. So has your life changed? No. Okay, so you've exaggerated ever so slightly. Yes, that's not, we, we all do that from time to time because we're, again, like being positive is not the same as exaggerating. If you're a Christian, you don't have to see everything as half empty, right? Because you've got the eyes of faith. you go, actually, this is difficult, but God's working. I can trust that. Okay. So, I, but I don't need to exaggerate and pretend things are all together fine and things are great. How many people came to the meeting last night? Millions. Really? No, we don't do that one, do we? We say, oh, who was at the party? Everyone. Really? Everyone. That's what we do. Exaggeration is going beyond the realms of honest assessment. Um, We've all been in churches where people have reported healing stories and they've exaggerated. Like, how is your ankle? It's completely better. (laughs) Really? Is it completely better? Yes, fine. Instead, what we should say is, what was the pain like before we prayed? What's the pain like now? Great. We praise God for improvement, but we don't need to exaggerate. We don't need to make God look better by exaggerating. Oh yeah, but I prayed and they weren't entirely healed and I felt bad for God. So I told everyone, I'm completely fine. No, you're not. You're just living in unreality and exaggerating. We can do that sometimes. Uh, one church leader I know, he has this great phrase. He says, celebrate everything, exaggerate nothing. And that's good, I like that. I don't know what your uh is. My experience is that a lot of us our problem isn't exaggerating everything. A lot of us, our problem is just seeing stuff with faith. And too often we're like, oh, no, everything's dr- terrible. It's not really, is it? I suppose that's exaggerating to the opposite degree. My life's a mess. There's no hope. Really? I keep saying really a lot, don't I? <laughs> I need to think of a better word. But we do that, and we've just got to watch that. Because when we exaggerate, our trust account goes down. Again, we forgive always. We trust over time. We're friends with everyone. We love everyone. We trust over time. And if you want to have a high trust account, this is what needs to happen. It may be that you've done something that has caused your trust account to get empty. And you're saying, why won't people trust me again? Well, they will over time. Give them time. Or someone's offended you, violated you, sinned against you. You're supposed to trust me. You're supposed to forgive me. I do forgive you. I'll trust you over time. And depending on the severity of what someone's done to us, it depends on how slowly our trust account starts to build up. If someone's had an affair or committed adultery or sinned against you in that way, it takes years to even get one deposit of trust back in that relationship. Things can take a long time depending on what's gone on in people's lives. So there's are two ways we can get a trust account and three ways we can keep it. And I know as we talk about this, there'll be a few groups of us who are thinking different things. You might be aware that you're someone who says yes to everything and consequently has to break a lot of promises. Or you might be thinking, well, what about me? I, I break pro- not I break promises, but I've broken some of the Biggest promises I've ever made. I said I do and I don't. I didn't. I said I would and I, I haven't. What about me? Jesus says, as followers of His, we're to be people of the utmost integrity. Next week we're going to talk more about divorce and remarriage. And so don't miss that one because Jesus is going to be here to do it. Um, but some of you might be thinking, well, I've broken promises. What do I do? How do I repair things? Some of you might think, well, I. I don't break promises, I just never make any because I'm running away from responsibility and I'm so scared of letting people down. Or well, for some of us, we spend too long relying on the maybes and the hope so's that we, don't, we do that too much. So what should we do? Okay, I want us to be aware of this. This is, this is, a, this is a human struggle because we're always wanting to sell images and please people and you know, make people think better of us. We all struggle with being honest Um, All of us struggle with insecurities, pride, dishonesty, depending on a whole range of factors, our upbringing, our experience, how people have treated us, our, our personalities. We can be more prone to some types of forms of dishonesty than others. But we want to be people who are wholeheartedly following Jesus. And to do that requires repentance and trust. I'm sorry. I too often rely on fluffy maybes or exaggerated yeses. I too often spend trust and I realize that that actually reflects badly on God because Jesus is keen that his followers are representatives of God. So that's why it's important that we're people of integrity. I want us to imagine what a church could be like or a Christian community could be like if we had a reputation like the early church did for being people of complete integrity and honesty. I've said before, but I want others to say of us, I don't want to be a Christian, but I want to do business with one. I don't want to be a Christian, but I want my daughter to marry one. I don't want to be a Christian, but I want to hire one. Single people, married people. In the way that we relate to one another, without suspicion, giving each other the benefit of the doubt, but doing so in complete trust, with complete honesty. Families, as we raise our kids, uh, we want to see homes established where parents ask forgiveness of their kids when they break their word, and where kids over time learn to keep their word because mum and dad do. That we model things that we want our kids to pick up. As we finish, I want to share a Bible verse that changed my life. Really, how did it change your life? It changed my life because it made me propose to my wife. I was a, a young guy afraid of commitment of any kind with a history of relationships that just went south because I couldn't commit and I was too woolly. And I read something one day in, a, in a, just a time of Bible reading that just did a number on me. And it's an unusual Bible verse. You might think, how did you get that from this? But it says this, Mark 10 verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Huh? Like what's that about? Jesus walks to Jerusalem and people are amazed? Like It's not as though he previously had trouble walking. If, that, if, he, if he had trouble walking in the past, then I can understand people being amazed. He's walking, but that's not the sense of what's going on here. They're afraid. Why? It's in those first few words. He's going up to Jerusalem. Jesus made a commitment to go to Jerusalem. The significance of that is Jesus knew when he got to Jerusalem, what awaited him was arrest. What awaited him was public trial, flogging, crucifixion, death. And yet here he is leading the charge walking to Jerusalem ahead of others you can imagine a scene people looking to another going he's not just going he's leading the way to Jerusalem he's not just said he's going to do something he's following through on it with gusto he's a man of utmost integrity God is a trustworthy God. He makes a promise. I'm going to rescue mankind from their sin. And then he doesn't do it reluctantly. He does it. The Bible says joyfully, scorning the shame of the cross. Jesus went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Knowing that what awaited him was separation from his father, bearing the sin on himself of the world, bearing my sin, your sin, bearing all of the times that we say we're going to do something and we don't do it. Jesus bore that on himself and he marched to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him and he led the way. He keeps his commitments. Jesus doesn't abandon us, he doesn't leave us, he doesn't say, I forgave you yesterday. He doesn't. He forgives. He loves. He leads. He's a trustworthy savior. And because of that, we can be a trustworthy people. In approaching marriage or remaining in marriage, we follow the one who kept the hardest commitment of all, who remained faithful in the face of the greatest agony and in the face of the worst infidelity and betrayal imaginable. The human race were created for this love relationship with God who could sing I love you and God say I love you we were created for that and yet we the Bible says hoard after other gods committed adultery broke that relationship Jesus forgives brings us back into relationship with him and shows himself as a trustworthy savior trust is like finance difficult to accrue easy to spend let's be trustworthy, truthful people because Jesus is to us. And When I read that verse about Jesus going to Jerusalem, it changed my life because I realized I can commit to this woman. I can say I do. And eight years on, I still am. And I'm grateful to God every day and I rely on the grace of God every day, but I know I'm following a trustworthy God so I can be a trustworthy husband. We're going to finish this morning by praying and breaking bread and reflecting on Jesus' commitment to us. Lord, I thank you that you're a trustworthy God. I ask that you'd help us to be a trustworthy people who, who bear the reputation of God well. God, where those of us are aware that we have sinned or fallen short in this regard, where we are aware that we're not as trustworthy as we'd like to be, where we're aware of areas that we need to repent, God, I pray that you'd help us to do that, to not just regret, but to repent, to decide to trust you and to follow you wholeheartedly. Lord, for those of us who are really wrestling with heartache from the past or heartache from the present because of broken promises, I ask, Father, that you would cover us with your love, your balm of commitment and grace and goodness to us, Thank you that you are a trustworthy, loving, forgiving, kind saviour. We adore you, God, and we want to be like you, Jesus. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup said this is my blood poured out for you drink it in remembrance of me took the bread said this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me Jesus we want to remember all that you've done for us Amen as Ollie and the band play I invite you to go to the tables at the back at the front grab some bread and a cup of juice and let's respond to God in this way